राजा रवि वर्मा बॉर्न ऑन ट्वेंटी नाइन्थ अप्रिलोर He was a celebrated Indian painter and an artist. Ravi Verma is considered among the greatest painters in the history of Indian art for a number of aesthetic and broader social reasons. We'll try and document a mini biography of him, more as a person and not particularly about his work. For that, I am honored to have Manu Pillai with us on Audio Gan. Manu is an Indian author and a historian who has three award-winning books in his name: The Ivory Throne Chronicles of Uh, of the house of travancore rebel sultans the deccan from khilji to shivaji and more recently the curtisian the mahatma and the italian brahmin tales from indian history so yeah thank you manu for giving your time and it's a real real honor to have you on audio can no thanks for having me kedar i'm looking forward to the conversation so yeah i've come up with 10 questions and uh, uh, obviously i won't start off with a basic question like who was raja ravi verma but i'm assuming the listeners would be knowing some bits of it so if you can start by telling like who who were his mentor who were his guru who was his teacher and like some background about raja ravi verma so you know there is this with ravi verma there are two things one there is a mythology of ravi verma and then there's a reality of ravi verma the mythology mm-hmm. is something that happens to any historical figure usually in any part of the world but especially in india because we tend to sort of you know all kinds of stories start gathering around a historical figure as soon as somebody becomes famous you know all kinds of uh, almost mystical elements start uh, accumulating around their story and because mm. of that often you can find that the historical figure gets concealed behind a lot of uh, myth making and this is this is almost natural it was you can call it the public relations of that time now we do it consciously with a much bigger speed but in those days you know it was through poetry and through these stories that were circulated about famous people that myth making took place so the mm-hmm. myth of ravi verma generally you know makes us think that he was born in some kind of artless universe and there was this divine gift in him that he was you know there was a yearning inside him to to bring it out and then he of course goes to the court of the travancore maharaja he was born in 1848 as you said 1862 as a 14 year old boy he's already in the travancore maharaja's court and there you know the few artists who are there are, are very resistant to this young boy because they are all uh, a little cautious about his talent they think he's going to surpass them and therefore they they're all resistant and you know not in a mood to give him any kind of instruction so he sort of you know on his own picks up books masters the art of oil painting and then goes out and becomes this famous man called raja ravi varma now obviously this you know when he, when he became famous automatically around him these stories started to gather his own family members started sort of celebrating these stories where ravi verma became an almost semi divine figure but in reality you know things were a little more uh, let's say it was a little less romantic and a little more realistic uh, mm. so let to begin with when he came to travancore it was not an artless court there was already uh, several generations of artists who had worked there so in the 1830s from tanjore uh, and and the madurai courts and the, the courts had gone which is why there were artists who were looking for patronage and so aligiri naidu and a whole a lot of miniature artists and musicians etc had come to travancore so that was the original initial sort of uh, phase there before that various company artists of the east india company period they had come and painted portraits in travancore in the you know 1860s when ravi verma arrived there there was already a very famous oil painter called ramaswami naidu who was a very popular uh, you know who was very popular with the maharaja at that time and of course ravi verma as a member of the aristocracy as a close relative of the royal family uh you know he, he was from a family that used to supply husbands to the princesses of travancore so he was well connected in terms of his family lineage and so on so he was welcomed to come and stay and hang around in the court environment and the maharaja certainly sought talent in him and encouraged him now of course ravi verma from the beginning uh, did have exposure to art because his uh, his grandmother 
uh, and her grandmother's sister, they had learned painting in the early 19th century from some North Kerala princes. From there, uh, you know, his uncle, a man called Raja Rajavapa, he had picked up uh, mural painting specifically, as well as some elements of uh, miniature ivory panel painting, etc., from this Alagiri Naidu that I mentioned earlier. In fact, if you go to Ravi Varma's ancestral home, you'll see that Raja Rajavarma's miniature paintings are still visible on a lot of walls, and including uh, on the walls of the family temple. They faded a little bit, but they're still there and visible. So he was exposed at home to, uh, you know, directly to his uncle, who gave him a basic amount of training in art. And then, of course, when he came to the court, he was exposed to oil painting, which is what really, uh, you know, caught his imagination. And that is what he would become a master of. Now, the Maharaj, mm. as I said, encouraged him throughout the uh, 1860s. By the early 1870s, he started, you know, stepping out and he was exhibiting his work. He was starting to win awards and medals in Madras, uh, primarily from the British for the kind of work he was doing. In the mid-1870s, when the Prince of Wales came to India on a, on a grand tour, one of the presents that was given to him, both by the Maharaja of Travancore as well as the Maharaja's brother, who was called the Alay Raja, both of these men gave Ravi Varma paintings as gifts to this British dignitary. So clearly his, his, his star was in the ascendant. He was starting to rise and become a prominent name in Madras. And uh, already by the 1870s, you know, his first portrait commissioned from an outsider for which he was paid a fee for the first time was from this uh, you know, lower level judge in Malabar. He had gone to a temple in, in coastal Karnataka to worship Saraswati. And then on the way back, he got this commission from the judge and he did two portraits. One, a somewhat flat painting of the judge's family with his wife and children. The other is a much better and more like stylistically superior painting. It's a portrait of the judge himself where he's wearing that whole Achkan style you know, garb and he's got a turban and all of that. And you see the, the future Ravi Varma as the portrait artist emerging already in these paintings. But mm -hmm. what really ends his connection to Travancore is in 1880, this Maharaja called Ailyam Tirunal dies in 1880. And his uh, brother comes to power. And the brother does not like Ravi Varma. Basically because the brother didn't like the previous Maharaja. And therefore anybody who the previous Maharaja supported, the brother decided he would not support. So, you know, because Ravi Varma was a favorite of Ailyam Tirunal, the new Maharaja Vishagam Tirunal decided to promote other artists. His favorite was a man called Arumugam Pillai and another one called K.P. Padmanabhan Tampi. These were the people that he decided to uh, promote. But the straw that really broke the camel's back was, you know, late in 1880, the governor of Madras came to uh, Travancore on a state visit. And in fact, there is a, a painting ascribed to Ravi Varma, a very large canvas that was auctioned uh, recently, I think last year, for a very large sum abroad. I think, no, or, or was it here? It might have been in the Nirav Modi collection, I'm not sure. But mm -hmm. uh, it it's basically, it basically depicts the arrival of the governor in Travancore and the Maharaja is receiving him. And here what happened was that when the Maharaja and the governor sat down to talk, uh, they discovered that, you know, the governor was very interested in meeting Ravi Varma. He had already been, he had already met Ravi Varma in Madras. He had already seen Ravi Varma's paintings. He thought of Ravi Varma as a friend. So he asked the Maharaja to invite Ravi Varma to join them. Now, mm. unusually, this was a problem in terms of protocol. Because you see, in the in the royal courts, protocol and you know etiquette was supreme, and there was this custom that Ravi Varma was definitely a nobleman. He was definitely of high birth. He was a relative of the royal family, but he was still not equal to the Maharaja. So, in the presence of the Maharaja, nobody could take a seat. The only people who took a seat in the presence of the Maharaja was the British, because they were superior to the Maharaja. So now what happens is this governor insists on seeing Ravi Varma. Ravi Varma is invited. And this leads to a very weird situation for everybody because the governor invites Ravi Varma to come and join them. Ravi Varma comes but says, look, I can't sit in the presence of my king. The governor says, well, I can't keep sitting while you're standing. So the governor stands up. And this means the Maharaja also has to stand up. And it creates this very awkward situation where Maharaja, artist Ravi Varma, as well as the governor are all standing and talking. And the Maharaja completely resents this kind of special favor that's being shown to Ravi Varma. Already he doesn't like him because it was, he was the late Maharaja's favorite. And now he's found another reason, uh, you know, because Ravi Varma is receiving this kind of special honor from the, mm. from the governor. And, you know, soon after this, Ravi Varma gets the message that he's no longer in favor. He leaves, uh, you know, the, the, the bar in Trivandrum, goes off to his wife's place in a place called Mahavelikara. 
And from there, he, you know, he's doing his own book, but he also reaches out to a man called Madhav Rao. Now, Madhav Rao is also another, you know, mentor for Ravi Varma in that sense, because Madhav Rao is the one who tells him, Madhav Rao used to be Divan of Travancore between 18, uh, till 1872. So for a good 12, 13 years, he was in, he was the man who was administering Travancore. So he was also very fond of Ravi Varma. And Ravi Varma wrote to him. Now, this is also something that doesn't come in the myth of Ravi Varma. In the myth of Ravi Varma, opportunities just land in his lap. But the reality of Ravi Varma is that like a professional today, he used to hustle. He actually wrote to Madhav Rao saying, you had promised me, you had said that, you know, you'd get me commissions in Northern India. You'd get me patronage in other places. Can I request you to invite me to, uh, you know, Bombay or Baroda or wherever? That is how this letter is still available in the, you know, it's, it's in Rupika Chavla's biography, for example. So mm-hmm. that is how uh, Madhav Rao, who was at that time in Baroda state under the Gaikwad of Baroda, he invites Ravi Varma to come and do some portraits for the Gaikwad's installation darbar in 1881. That is how Ravi Varma, who was till then basically a Travancore painter with a little bit of a reputation in Madras among the high society British crowd of that city, of the Madras presidency, he now Mm. moves into a a pan-Indian space where he goes to Bombay, he goes to Baroda, and from there, there's no looking back. So the two real mentors, or rather the three real mentors in his life are firstly his uncle, who was a painter in his own right. The next was Ayliam Tirunal Maharaja of Travancore, who for a good 18 years extended a lot of support to Ravi Varma. And finally, it was the Tanjaur Brahmin, Sir T. Madhav Rao, who took him to Baroda and gave him further opportunity, after which Ravi Varma spread his wings and succeeded. Uh, you know, he, once, once, he was always a hard worker. So given an opportunity, he made the most of it. Hmm, that's super interesting. I, in fact, uh, like... While listening to the uh, podcast with Amit also, I was just trying to plot these so many names in the, <laughs> in like, in, in chronology. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so who were, like, like, if you compare the myth or the, or the real aspect as well, like, every artist has some sort of a sorrow, grief, or rebel, or I don't know what, like, there's some conflict. Mm-hmm. So, uh uh, so two questions. So when he landed at the age of fourteen, um, in the in the uh, court, like was there like a formal training already started? Uh, was he like an accomplished painter in terms of skill and craft, or uh, how was that? And the second is like what sort of background uh, Ravi Verma had? Which uh, was there any pain? Was there any 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 conflict? which triggered this artistic uh, rigor? No, nothing that we know of as far as his early life is concerned. In fact, uh, there are stories that he was extremely accomplished by the time he came because, you know, a little after he was he had arrived in the court, there was this Danish painter called Theodore Jensen who came to the Darbar and Ravi Varma asked to ask this Jensen whether he'd give him art lessons. And, you know, the story goes that Jensen was very scared that Ravi Varma was, was much better than him. So naturally, he didn't want to support Ravi Varma's this thing. So he said no. But because the Maharaja insisted, Ravi Varma was allowed to watch uh, Jensen painting. And that's how apparently Ravi Varma picked up oil painting. And that's how uh, when Jensen presented his portrait of the Maharaja and the Maharaja's wife, Ravi Varma, who had been secretly working on a portrait of his own, unveiled his own portrait and it turned out that his was better than Jensen's. Now, this story is slightly exaggerated in the sense that, you know, Jensen may or may not have recognized Ravi Varma's talent. But one of the reasons he did not give Ravi Varma lessons was simply because he was only briefly in Trivandrum and he had to do his work. He had to paint the portrait. So he had no time to give lessons to a 14, 15, 16 year old boy on the side. You know, he simply didn't have time. B, art historians like Partha Mitter have said that, you know, the influence of Theodore Jensen is quite visible in Ravi Varma's art. So it's not like Ravi Varma completely, uh, you know, destroyed this man's reputation by doing something better. Ravi Varma, on the other hand, picked up something from him and learned from him. In terms of, um, you know, early sort of anything traumatic in terms of uh, Ravi Orma's early life, no. I think the only uh, story about his early life is, in fact, when his mother was pregnant. There's a story that she had, she was possessed by a yakshi in the family grove, you know, where where the shrine is. And there the yakshi, and that basically indicated that she was going to have some kind of a genius son. But this is also probably a later story. What 
took did you know cause an interest in him was definitely his uncle's art that he saw around him and later uh, once he came to travancore the different varieties of art uh, that he was exposed to not just mural painting not just ivory panel miniature painting but also oil painting and so on that is really what triggered his desire but uh, i think if you look at anything that is distasteful in his life perhaps that is later in life which is that once he decides to become a professional artist once he decides to spread his wings beyond the travancore court this causes a lot of resentment among the people around him because he belongs as i said to the aristocracy of travancore they did not work there was no need for them to work you know his family had a, a 10 or 12000 acre estate they used to get a lot of revenue from that there was no reason for him to lift his finger and do anything you know as a professional in fact in those days to do art and do a painting and take money for it was almost considered a you know it was considered something artisans and lower caste people did upper caste you know semi royal people had no reason to do something like that that was definitely an attitude that he has to he had to fight because that was not the people around him the milieu out in which he existed none of that could understand what he was trying to do none of them understood the idea of being a professional painter so he seemed like a little bit of a black sheep in that context and the one person who had even greater difficulty understanding this was his wife because she was you know she was also from an aristocratic family her sisters were the then uh, ranis of travancore so she also had royal connections so she was definitely you know uh, not the type of woman to understand why her husband needed to have a career to begin with and why of all things in the world it had to be something like painting so for him that was the real tension in his life rather than an early tension it was towards his youth in his 20s and 30s this difficulty in the marriage in terms of you know her complete uh, lack of uh, comprehension as to what he was trying to do and the kind of resistance he met in his own com- wider community those were the real uh, trigger points as you can you know uh, you mm. can sort of frame it that way correct and and obviously he he must have uh... like reach out to a lot of uh, people in the north uh, while during this struggle to make uh, his mark uh, in the in the indian landscape so uh, like i want to understand are there any references where it's clearly shows that there's some sort of a trait so what made his work or him stand apart from the rest of the artists at that time was it the was it the art uh, as in the craft and the art itself uh, or was the subjects because from my exposure he has done a lot of mythological uh, paintings as well yeah. uh, or was it like a good hustler good good marketing guy to promote his work i think all of them you see because talent he had but the thing is there were also other talented people so you know even the the people in travanco as i said arumugam pillai kp padmanabhan tambi uh, ramaswami naidu these are all very talented painters in fact ravi varma himself also acknowledged the talent of another slightly younger painter called mukundan tambi and he said mukundan tambi had a had a problem with alcohol and discipline and he said ravi varma once said that if mukundan tambi just focused he could wipe us off all of us off with his brush you know that was the kind of talent that mukundan tambi had what made the difference was that ravi varma wedded his talent with genuine hard work this was a man who had real ambition that he wanted to achieve something with his talent he otherwise see if it was just art for art's sake he could have sat in the travancore darbar the maharajas would have continued giving him a basic stipend he could have painted to his you know to satisfy himself and you know lived in the comfort of his palace and lived in the comfort of his family's wealth why did he step out why did he go out and become a pan indian professional part of it is ambition he wanted to be recognized he enjoyed the kind of attention it brought the other thing is definitely networks you know a lot of other talented artists who came from either lower castes or more impoverished backgrounds simply did not have the networks travel uh, ravi varma possessed as i said he's you know through his wife he's the brother in law of the ranis of travancore his contacts are people like the diwan of travancore the diwar of baroda uh, you know people at very high levels governors of the british uh, system so he was very well connected and he knew how to use this network to his advantage it wasn't mm. only networking it certainly wasn't it was talent married to hard work married to a canny understanding of how to use networks very well and that is what the, it was the combination of these three things that made him such a success that made him such a phenomenon and the fourth thing is also that because he was socially very high because he was socially in the aristocracy wherever he went the treatment he received was different 
For example, if he goes to a North Indian court, a, a, a regular painter from somewhere else will be received as a regular artist. There'll be no great, uh, you know, pampering or great treatment given to this artist. But because he came from the aristocracy, because of his royal connections, he was treated more or less in, in an equal fashion by various Maharajas. As I said, the governor treating Ravi Varma as a friend when he's only in his 20s, you know, that, that gives you a hint of the kind of social standing he enjoyed. And that also opened doors to him uh, in, in various darbars and various powerful places. And this was also visible in the kind of, you know, the, the way he was compensated. Uh, a regular artist may be paid in money or may be paid in land and things like that. But Ravi Varma was paid in things and goods that, en- that enjoyed a lot of prestige value. For instance, he would be given these very expensive robes of silk, brocade silk, things like that. He was paid sometimes in elephants. He was paid sometimes in jewels. So he was, he was treated in a very different way to the other artists. He was socially and in a caste way, he was in a very different league. His networks were very strong. And because he had royal connections, and on top of that, he worked hard and had talent, all of this came together to give him that kind of profile. Mm-hmm. But were there any then trade-offs? Because uh, what the famous ones which are there are mainly portraits. So, uh, did he explore others than like, like what were the other forms of expression? Did he explore uh, like there were abstract and then there were like different painting styles as well, right? Yeah. So, so Ravi Varma so that, didn't uh, yeah, go too much into sorry, the yeah. Sorry to add to yeah. that, I wanted to also uh, ask you like. Then how did this Dutch portraits, uh, portrayed uh, Theodor Jensen connection happen? Because uh, from whatever I g- gather right now, it's mainly India. So how was the connection with the his contemporaries or his, uh, his like other parts of the world? Yeah, so he never went abroad. He There is some suggestion that he was quite keen to go abroad, but it would have really destroyed his uh, caste position back home. You know, in the late 19th century, it was still Kalapani, you can't go abroad, etc. Some North Indian Maharajas had started, but in Travancore, it was extremely unusual to go abroad. The Maharaja who was ruling from 1885 to 1924, well after Ravi Arman was, 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 dead, was dead, was a very orthodox Maharaja. In fact, even the previous Maharaja, the one I mentioned, who didn't like Ravi Varma, when he was in power, he even tried to have Ravi Varma ostracized by his community because Ravi Varma was living in Bombay. And the Maharaja said, if he's living in Bombay full time, how do you know that he's doing all the rites and rituals as per his caste position? Because he's a, he, Ravi Varma was a purebred Kshatriya, as it were. He used to have a sacred thread here to do his Gayatri Mantra in the morning, etc. So the Maharaja said, he's too far away. Nobody knows how he's living. It's impossible that he's following all the rules there. So he's no longer a member of the community. So there was even an effort to ostracize him like that. So there was no question for Ravi Orma or for Ravi Orma going abroad. The exposure he had to Western art was through artists who came here. So even Theodore Jensen came to the Travancore court. He, because often what happened is this Jensen was not a particularly great painter. He was not particularly famous or anything. But what happened was that a lot of B-grade artists from Europe, they could not thrive in the European market because there was better talent there. But they did find lots of patronage and money in India because in India, Indian Maharajas were very eager to have Western art. So although so the A-grade artists of Europe, because they were successful in Europe, they never came to India. They saw no reason to come to India. And the B-grade ones who came, they got promoted by the Maharajas, who therefore ended up collecting their work. So Theodore Jensen was one of those characters who came to India because he was finding it difficult to survive in Europe. That's how Ravi Orna was exposed to him. In terms of other artistic movements like abstract art and you know impressionism and all that, it doesn't seem to have had much of an impact on him because he was largely influenced by the academic realist style. That was what he uh, you know, promoted. That is what he was interested in. That is what he wanted to use to give a new imagery for Indian uh, mythological art and, and for Indian portraiture. So, you know, for example, in Udaipur, he was exposed to the old miniature style paintings of the Mughals and the Rajputana princes, where, you know, it's that profile shot. It's almost like a two-dimensional profile shot that's done. It's not a, a fully alive 3D realist kind of work. And so he was exposed to that. He was exposed to other Indian art. He, he once traveled a great deal looking at sculpture and looking at various, uh, you know, Indian artistic traditions. But he was quite fixed that it was the Western academic realist style that he wanted to take. And he wanted to take Indian topics, Indian themes, Indian subjects and merge the two. So but what you mentioned the Puranic paintings and that's the other interesting thing. 
Ravi Verma's mm-hmm. initial fame to a great extent was built by his portraits. Even when he went, I mean, he did portraits, of course, in Travancore. In Baroda, he was commissioned to do portraits. After that, in Mysore, the Maharaja commissioned to do portraits. So it was portraits as a portrait maker is what he first became famous. But then he was commissioned to do these Puranic paintings for Baroda. And after he had finished them and before they were given to Baroda, with the Baroda government's permission, he exhibited them in Trivandrum and Bombay and, and finally in Baroda as well. During the exhibition is when his eyes were opened to how popular these paintings could get. Because the kind of masses that came for it, the kind of impact this had on people. You know, there's that story, right? In the 1980s, when the Ramayana was first uh, aired on Doordarshan, uh, across mm. India, people would, you know, sort of bathe and get ready and sit at nine o'clock in, in, a, in a sort of namaskar position in front of the TV because they genuinely were looking at, they thought they were looking at their gods on TV. There was a genuine feeling of reverence. Now, take that back by a hundred years. And in the 1880s and 1890s, this is the kind of impact that Ravi Verma realized Puranic paintings could do. When he recreated Sri Rama or Lakshmana, you know, Mahabharata characters, Saraswati, Saraswati, gods and goddesses on canvas, people were struck. Because what did we have before that? If you look at temple sculptures, that's a completely distant, almost alien looking style, right? Because those figures have these very idealized sort of forms. Uh, the clothes are very different. Even female figures only have uh, something like dhotis, a waistcloth. Nobody wears blouses. It's a very different era. In a Victorian age, you can't recreate that because that would have people would have frowned on that. Uh, then you look at the miniature art. That's a different kind of art. Now you're seeing gods and goddesses draped like contemporary human beings. They look like contemporary human beings. They, 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 they look very handsome and very beautiful. And suddenly you're struck because you've never seen Hindu gods, Hindu epic characters depicted like this. You've never seen them in front of you come alive. People like Ravi Varma, people across India would re- recite the Ramayana, they would recite the Mahabharata, they would listen to great stories, they would even watch performances, you know, the Ram Leela, etc. They would watch performances. But nobody had visualized God's greatest by even the, the, the way in which he took the sari. You know, the, the style of sari that he, he used had just started to become popular in Bengal. But if you look at it, different women in India wore the sari in different ways. In Tamil Nadu, they wore it in a different way. In Kerala, the sari was not worn at all. It was this thing called the bunda. In Maharashtra, it was worn in the Navari style. Uh, you know, up north, it was worn in a different way. But the, the, the style that he used with the pleats, which some fashionable women in Bengal had started wearing. And remember, Bengal at that time and Calcutta was seen as this cosmopolitan hub. There and the women of Bombay after that, they're the ones who started wearing this cosmopolitan pan-Indian sari. He started draping a lot of gods and a lot of his characters in that that sari format. So if you look at his painting of Damayanti, Damayanti is wearing a modern-day sari. She's not wearing mm. some archaic, distant-looking costume that you can't relate with anymore. She's wearing something that Indian women, and, and particularly upper-caste, stylish Indian women, are starting to wear. So he tapped into that 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 increasing public appetite for visual imagery and gave them that visual imagery. He's the one who filled a gap there. So today, if you ask someone to shut their eyes and picture an Indian god or goddess, the the the, the basic format or the basic image that comes in front of them is inspired by Ravi Varma paintings and Ravi Varma lithographs, because that is the he was filling a real big gap there and creating a new imagery for Indian gods. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I want to ask you one question on the fly because while I was reading and uh, having a chat and you also mentioned about uh, Calcutta, uh, there were are there any references where uh, Swami Vivekanand particularly uh, made critical comments on this? Because, uh, because like, yeah, as you mentioned, traditionally gods were not picturized that way. They were like much more... Um, the, the, the impression which you get after looking at Raja uh, Ravi Verma's uh, depiction of goddesses, is much more uh, westernized uh, for that time. So are there any references where Vivekananda critiqued this? So there's, I don't know if Vivekananda directly said anything, but you know, some of his disciples did. For example, sister Nivedita hated Ravi Verma's art. She thought, for example, you know, there's that famous painting called Shakuntala Patralekhan, where Shakuntala is sitting, is lying down on the, on, on, on the grass, you know, in, in open air under a tree and in, in, in an open air setting. And she's writing mm-hmm. a, a love letter. And Nivedita, sister Nivedita had horrible things to say about this, you know, saying what kind of well-behaved Indian girl would lie like this in public and write letters it's, it's impossible and this is not national art this is not good art etc etc so that was Vivekananda's uh, direct disciple 
but this hmm. was also because the moment ravi varma died till ravi varma died there was no direct criticism of his work there were some people who frowned and said oh you know goth should not be depicted like this it sort of you know reduces their their glory or it takes away their mystique etc but that didn't really affect him or it didn't become a major thing for most part he used to get very complimentary uh, comments and because major hindu maharajas ranging from the maharana in udaipur the who's the maharana of mewar to the gaikwad of baroda to the maharaja of mysore you know the mysore and baroda the top league of indian princes 21 gun salute states very powerful hindu courts when they are promoting his work when they are collecting his work it's very difficult for people to say anything but the moment he died you start seeing criticism of ravi varma coming in because by then he died in 1906 that coincides around it with the same years in which the partition of bengal took place which was just before his death and after that there was a huge spark and a huge increase in revolutionary movement in bengal as well as as well as nationalist movement in bengal in the nationalist phase people thought that ravi varma's style of using the western academic realism for indian themes was not patriotic so it's a little bit like today's national versus anti national debate where in those yeah. days they said oh no this man whatever his skill may be by using a western technique he has demeaned indian art and therefore there is something called the bengal school that came up which tried to uh, sort of revive older forms of indian art and sort of replicate that even but to be fair even the bengal school got criticized a little later by later artists of the progressive group you know so it's not like any artist's work at the end of the day is fully appreciated there's always somebody who comes later who has criticism for it vivekananda mm. it is likely was exposed to ravi varma's work because Ravi Varma's uh, nephew who was the, the prince of Travancore so his wife's direct nephew uh, was a prince called Ashwati Tirunal he never managed to rule because he died as a young man at the age of uh, 30 but as a young man he had met Vivekananda he had taken a photograph of Vivekananda so it's possible that in this same circles that all these people moved in Vivekananda would have been exposed to some of Ravi Varma's work uh, the tagores definitely were and you know Rabindranath Tagore has spoken about Ravi Varma and how you know at that time Ravi Varma was such a big uh, sensation so it's very likely that in the bengal circles Vivekananda also uh, had seen Ravi Varma Uh, but whether or not he directly said anything i don't know i don't think he did because i've never come across a direct reference the references i've seen are from from vivekananda's disciples afterwards not by vivekananda himself mm-hmm. cool and uh, yeah so if you can just uh, also briefly tell like was there any particular uh, milestone painting which made him famous or uh, it was like just growing organically uh, through his network and like uh, no so his so as i said he first became famous among the rich and powerful because of his portraits everybody wanted his portraits then he was doing these you know not portraits but random paintings of you know naya woman playing the veena naya woman uh, arranging her hair you know things like that those were the kind of themes that he was painting and this also some grand people you know major bureaucrats divans uh, some british people they wanted to collect so his shakuntala painting for example was used by monia williams as the frontispiece for her, a later edition of his book so you know there was that kind of uh, reception in uh, you know powerful circles in the, the high society circles the real milestone frankly is first as i said that puranic paintings exhibition that he does and he sees the public's response and after that he does he takes a business decision which becomes the chief milestone that makes ravi varma a household name which is to create prints of these paintings so you know he acquires he sets up a lithographs press originally in bombay and then it moves to a place near lonavla uh, when the plague breaks out in bombay and uh, it's through the press that ravi varma's paintings are now being produced at a mass level now one of the reasons why people like anand kumar swami sister nivedita criticize ravi varma is partly also because they only saw the prints and the prints naturally were a much cheaper version of the actual painting because in those days printing technology was not very advanced it used to be done with lithographs where you know they have those litho stones and then the stones are sort of used to imprint uh, the image on on pay on on the paper so there were limitations to in terms of quality and all that but ravi varma was very keen that having achieved now look at it he came into the maharaja's court in 1862 by the 1890s you know he spent about what 30 years in in this field he's earned fame with assorted maharajas baroda etc he's made friends with the high and mighty of british society now you can see that he's yearning to go beyond that 
he's yearning to do something that's not just for the high society people and that is why he creates this press that's printing his works and in the printing process suddenly ravi varma's paintings which only a few people had direct access to ends up uh, you know in the market where it can be picked up by anybody so middle class families across india calcutta bombay trivandrum tamil nadu anywhere you look there are ravi varma prints that slowly start becoming available the the, the news of the prints existence starts to get uh, disseminated across the country people actively start buying these prints because yes even in their puja room they so far they only have an idol or they only have some other form of representing god now they've got an actual image and they've got options they can have a lakshmi they can have a saraswati they can have a ra shri ram they can have anybody they want because ravi varma's prints are doing that it is through that that ravi varma finally achieve, achieves the kind of fame that we associate with him till then you know today's artists for example you take famous contemporary artists today the english language press knows them uh, you know the the people who read about art and culture they know them people who generally have a certain exposure in any kind of aesthetic field they will know about them but you go into a into a let's say a low middle class family in bombay and ask them or oh, i won't take any names personally but you know i give them the name of a prominent contemporary artist they won't really relate to that person they may not even have heard of that person Ravi Varma however occupied that gap. Ravi Varma managed to realize that there was a huge audience there which could not afford massive oil paintings and in his own way he was creating what today we call affordable art. He was creating art for the people. He was not creating art in some kind of abstract high and mighty lofty way where it's like oh my god I only paint for myself I only paint for art's sake no he was painting to communicate he was painting to tell a story he was painting to bring alive the epics in a visual way and for that the larger the audience the better that becomes a chief milestone in his life it's it's really that commercial decision to say okay i've earned my stripes i've earned critical acclaim i've earned fame i've earned wealth and money i've earned you know everything that you know a person could desire this is my way really of giving back this is my way of taking this to the next level and making it something for the people and he actually ended up losing money on that press that press was never a good he was not a good businessman his uh, descendant who's uh, the current uh, titular maharani of travancore rukmini varma she told me this this story about how she he would not even hand money because he came from this very sanskritic high caste culture in kerala this very aristocratic culture he used to you know look down on handling money personally so you know if he he used to give debts to uh, he used to loan money to people and never bother about asking it back there was definitely no question of taking interest he would even when people came with payment he would not personally collect it unless of course it was some maharaja because with maharajas if you don't take it yourself it's an offense but if it's other you know high heeled clients who came he would not deal with the money himself it was a secretary it was his brother it was people like that who handled money because he was not directly interested in money for money's sake so on the press also he lost money but he was trying to do something the press was not a means to profit the press was a means to put out his art to a much bigger audience in the tens of thousands and that he achieved which is why even when the bengal school criticized him even when uh, a phase began with the progressive artists even when ravi varma went out of fashion his name was still a part of cultural memory and which is why in the 90s if you look the late 80s onwards you see a, a resurgence of hindu uh, pride in india like there's a lot of um, there's politically a lot of this is the time of course when hindutva comes to power there's assertion of uh, middle class hindu identity etc you see that ravi varma's trajectory also returns at the same time his popularity also returns at the same time because people immediately went back instinctively to his art because his art was always there filling that gap very very fascinating in fact i was just going to ask you about this the, the oleograph and the printing press uh, how did he manage but yeah you so so uh, i understand like the 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 amount of information and knowledge you have about this particular area is 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 fathomless and i can't really like keep asking because this this can just go on and on so uh, if in this context for this particular episode if uh, if we have to conclude um there is lot of we started off by there is a myth side and then there is a realistic side mm-hmm. so if uh, and then at, the, at in this answer particularly you mentioned about uh, his his giving back to society sort of attitude so if one has to 
what would be like the one thing which one can imbibe out of Raja Ravi Verma uh, apart from his inspiring work um, for today's artists and painters? And this is mainly because uh, like we just ride the wave, right? Nobody really goes deep and researches a particular person to understand. And then there are always these shades. There's yeah. no black and white for like big people. Yeah. So so if you can just illustrate some black, some white uh, part of it, and uh, that could be like a just an initial start to to further inquire into the subject of uh, Ravi Verma or any painter in India. Yeah, I think you know. For me, what I so I just did a book uh, for a foundation. There's the Raja Ravi Verma Heritage Foundation in Bangalore. So we mm-hmm. were we were talking last year about Ravi Verma very casually. I was talking to the CEO and the chairperson of the foundation. The chairperson is the same uh, Rukmini Verma, who's the descendant as well as the current titular Maharani of Travancore. She's also a painter in her own right. So we were just generally talking, and I I was ta- thinking about his portraits. As I said, his Puranic paintings made him famous. But even his portraits, I kept thinking there's something beyond just having the likenesses of the rich and famous. So I was like, who are the people in the portraits that he's painted? If you do a if you do a sort of historical analysis of the characters and the men and women that he's painted, my God, the kind of stories that come out of that. And suddenly Ravi Orma's portraits become a visual archive of the most amazing, you know, individual political stories of that time. So, you know, when he paints Sayaji Rao Gaikwad of Baroda, what do we see at one glance? We see yet another Maharaja in velvet clothes, you know, silks, wearing these diamonds and wonderful jewels and sort of posing in a very regal way. But there is a backstory that painting encapsulates this lifestyle and the story of a man who was utterly fascinating. Sayaji Rao Gaikwad, till the age of 12, used to was an illiterate boy working on a farm. He was distantly related to the Gaikwad royal family. When the royal family had no heirs, the then Maharani adopted him. And overnight, the British trained him, thinking that we will train him to become a loyal pillar of the British Empire. And Sayaji Rao was accordingly trained and accordingly meant or expected to be this very pro-British ruler. Except that once he became a ruler, he developed an identity of his own. He started saying things that the British didn't like. He started resisting British, uh, you know, uh, British uh, sort of uh, trespassing on his powers. He started, uh, you know, challenging them on many grounds. In fact, in 1911, when the British king came to India for his coronation, it was the Delhi Darbar, the the third Delhi Darbar. At that time... Sayaji Raghaikwa did something that was called seditious in the press, which was that he showed his back to the British emperor. He basically walked up and instead of bowing many times to the British emperor, he just sort of lowered his head or tilted his head slightly, turned around and walked back. And turning the way back to the emperor was a major breach of protocol. So that one painting of Ravi Verma, which shows this Maharaja who we, we think is, oh, you know, just a Maharaja just another rich man that this, you know, posh artist painted and, you know, nothing beyond that. There is actually something beyond that. That painting encapsulates a very fascinating story of a very fascinating man. And accordingly, if you go through each painting, you start discovering, my God, the backstories are just amazing. The people Ravi Orma has painted are actually the movers and shakers of the time. This is a time where nationalism has still not become aggressive. It's moderate nationalism. And that he's painted practically all the chief people of that moderate nationalist phase. He knew many of them uh, personally, ranging from Gokhale to Dada by Nauroji. Uh, but he also painted the big bureaucrats of the time and all of that. And that led... So then the Ravi Orma Foundation, after this conversation we had, uh, you know, the, the CEO, Gitanjani Maini, said, look, why don't you do a picture book on this? So then, <laughs> accordingly, I ended up uh, dedicating some time and doing research on this. And we've just produced uh, a limited edition, not-for-profit kind of a book, uh, which will come out on Ravi Orma's uh, birth anniversary on the 29th, as you said. And that's when this book is going to come out. And it's called The World of Raja Ravi Verma, Princes and Patrons. And that, it was in the course of this research that I really started thinking about what made Ravi Verma special. One, as we discussed earlier, the, you, know, you mentioned that it's all grey, but the, if, you, if you were to move it to black and white, one was definitely his abject and complete dedication to professional values. You know, we live in a time when... We're, you know, if you look at millennials, the way we are raised, we're often told, oh, you know, express yourself, you know, do what you love and all of that. But frankly, 
as i said lots of people have talent but you succeed if you can marry your talent to discipline you succeed if you marry if you can marry your talent to professionalism there is no point being in my case for example or the world i work in there's no point being a very talented writer if nobody is going to read you there's no point being a very talented writer if you're only writing for five other writers you need an audience you're trying to communicate something and for that you have to really learn discipline and time management and discipline and networking and all of that and ravi varma over a century ago he managed to do all of this without you know mass communication that was possible without uh, internet without any of this this man who was in a very comfortable position in a darbar in travancore could have lived his whole life like that comfortably doing whatever he wanted the fact that he stepped out he got on the railways he traveled to far away countries he stood outside the nizam of hyderabad's door for hours waiting to show his face to the nizam and try and see if the nizam will give him a give him a commission and the nizam did not and he he wasn't disappointed i mean he was personally disappointed but he took it in his stride he was somebody who who achieved a lot but he could also take failure in his stride he could also take negativity in his stride he could remain focused on the task he could remain focused on what he wanted to accomplish for me frankly that is what makes him stand out that is what really sets him apart his ability to really bring his talent but give it some very practical uh, you know skills on the side and together achieve something new and at the end of it ravi varma was still you know not a satisfied man in fact his uh, uh this is something in with which i end this new book this this illustrated book that i've done for the foundation and you know we have this wonderful malayalam letter that he wrote on the eve of his demise and he had already lost his brother his brother was for many years his assistant and companion in fact many ravi varmas that actually signed ravi varma is they joined paintings because the brother would often uh, you know contribute to the painting of the canvas because it had become such a big enterprise there were so many paintings to do it was a it was a two man job rather than just ravi varma and uh, you know the brother had passed away suddenly and ravi varma had got a major shock from that and then uh, soon after that his own son who had also started assisting him a man called rama varma rama varma sadly did not become very famous and he didn't have his father's talent but he was also helping ravi varma and ravi varma was sort of trying to groom him etc and you know ravi varma's son this rama varma falls ill his older son whose name was kerala varma that son had become a drunkard so he was already disappointed about that son so you've got two sons the older one is completely out of your hands and you know tragic situation where the father is a great man the son has become this uh, you know profligate character younger son is trying to do art doesn't have your talent but here he is also sick and ravi varma has also lost his brother and there's this moment of vulnerability wherein malayalam ravi varma refers to himself and asks why maybe and and says that maybe it's because he's a papi that god is treating him like this papi means sinner you know papa or pap so he's basically just a year before his death he's basically looking inward and thinking that you know for all that i've achieved whether it's fame whether it's you know taking art to the masses whether it's anything else you know at the end of the day the people he loved his brothers left him his son is ill the other son is not doing well he's he's got very human emotions at the end of it at the end of it he's a little bit of a broken man after achieving all this you know after becoming the raja ravi varma that the world is going to commemorate what i discovered was that raja ravi varma was also very human and that final moment of his life the final year of his life he was in a very vulnerable tender phase not quite sure you know what all this achievement meant when deep inside he was not at peace wow <laughs> so brilliant so brilliant uh i think yeah i mean i like i'm run out of questions and from my limited knowledge and the basic research which i had done you have like shared some really really noteworthy uh insights about raja ravi varma oh, i know this is like yeah, yeah. <laughs> So cool I think on that note uh, we can conclude this episode uh, but keep our ongoing quest to understand Raja Ravi Varma's both the mythic and the real side and there's a lot uh, to understand as you know he's one of those people we've in, in many ways we've just scratched the surface there's so much more yeah, to yeah. correct correct yeah i mean that's that's the sad part that um, uh, this podcast medium can just happen like as amit varma's long conversation but unfortunately the depth uh, in the subject and to understand and come up with more nuanced question is something which i'm working towards but it was really really great talking to you and so thankful that you generously spoke about 
Raja Ravi Verma. I'm like, I'm really happy for that. Thanks, Kedar. Cool, cool. So you can follow uh, Manu Pillai on Twitter at uh, Unam Pillai, which is Manu's ulta. And visit manupillai.com uh, to read more about his uh, work and his books. And uh, when is this uh, Raja Ravi Verma's book? Uh, uh, is it out? You know, so uh, the I thing think... is, we we thought we'd bring out the limited edition series end of this month. And there was a big event planned in, in Bangalore. And we were flying down some people from America, art historians, etc. for it. Uh, and the mm. foundation was really going out of its way to celebrate this as a huge thing. But then, as you know, this is the age of coronavirus. So there's uh, definitely no public event happening now. So what we're doing is the limited edition print series will definitely come out. But um, uh, the, the found, as I said, the foundation's idea is to put this research out there for people to refer to. So on the 29th, on his birth anniversary, as an online event, I think the, the book will probably be placed in an online situation where people can refer to it, etc. And, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to physically celebrate Ravi Orma whenever Corona goes away. And we can bring back some of the light and color from Ravi Orma's paintings into our actual lives. Yeah, sure. So I'll see if I can just release this episode during the 29th April. Uh, cool. On that note, uh, thanks a lot, Manu. Thanks a lot. I I, I don't have words to th- thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Gedar. And that's it from today's Gyan session. Catch us on iTunes, Savan, Stitcher or any podcasting app you use. Do rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Stay tuned for more Gyan on audiogyan.com. Till then, bye. Hello! It's been a great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On this round is on me. Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish Thing, Anish welcomes ultra-marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. On Cock and Bull, Cyrus, Naveen, Akash and Shreyas talk about the Korean band BTS serving in the military and its repercussions. On Think Fast, Varun and Suchita discuss Wing Greens and their latest acquisitions and about the Indian sexual wellness market. And on Shuni One, Sheila Dathya is joined by Dinika Bhatia, CEO and founder of Nutty Gritties. They talk about coming from a business family and Dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt-free snacking. Once again, don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcast.com. We have some exciting new merch out there for you. Also, do follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. And do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to. Appreciate them, rate them and review them wherever you are listening to them. You can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com slash IBM Podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tales, Kotak Privy League Program and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks guys, without you this would not be possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, Blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya and on our show Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IBM Podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from.